and connection with failure. There's something about painting on a small piece of paper that's a lot easier than painting on a big canvas, which I still do larger, larger work as well. But like, if I hate my daily painting, who cares? Yeah, it's not as scary. Who cares? There's a new one tomorrow. Welcome to Fun With Failure, a podcast about individual and organizational resilience. I'm your host, Dr. Alexis Carrero. Let's have some fun. My guest today is abstract artist and designer, Kelly Broderick. As a teen and young adult, she studied at MassArt and Boston's Museum School before graduating with her BFA from Syracuse University. She stepped away from painting for nearly two decades while her design career took priority and worked as a footwear designer for several global athletic and fashion brands. Beginning in 2017, Kelly faced hardship while caring for both her young children and dying parents. Her perspective as an artist came into focus through these challenging few years. During this time, she sought refuge in painting. In early 2020, Kelly took her first intuitive abstract workshop with Kelly McDonald through the North River Art Society, and she was immediately hooked. Since that day, abstract painting has been the primary focus of her work. She's also a Boston native, and I've known her since kindergarten. <laughs> so Kelly, what's up? Welcome to the show. Hi. How's your sister? Everyone's great. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. It just, the accent just comes back. I know it does. It really does. Particularly when you're speaking quickly with old friends. Yeah. When I talk to my OGs, especially if I have a couple beers, it just comes right back. <laughs> Not a problem at all. Yeah, so kindergarten, right? Like, so we, we have known each other for 40 plus years. I know it's a long time. I'm grateful. I like it. <laughs> I'm grateful too. I know there's something about just knowing people and having friends in your life that, you know, you like literally grew up with. Yeah, it is. And I, I always marvel at looking at where everyone is now and, and then imagining their four, five, six-year-old selves and being like, oh yeah, that makes sense. That tracks. Yeah. Or some, or some don't. I'm like, huh, I didn't see that one coming. Yeah. But I think it's nice. It's nice that we all, there's, I think a few of us that still have that bond where it's like, you could pick up the phone and connect again very easily. And we all root for one another, which I think is just the most beautiful thing. We're so lucky. I just, I know so many people who don't have that long standing connection and that long standing friendship. And yeah, it's really beautiful. It's funny. They ebb and flow too. Like we lose touch and then we find each other again. And, but there is a beauty in reconnecting to that old origins. <laughs> Absolutely. So obviously, right. I'm excited to talk to you for several reasons. One of them is because just a few years ago, you weren't even comfortable referring to yourself as an artist or putting your artwork, quote unquote, out there for people to see. But now you're like crushing Instagram, you're having art shows, you're selling your artwork. It's wild. So yeah, that is so, I'm so excited to talk about this. Because, so like what happened? Why were you so reluctant to call yourself an artist? And how do you feel about it now? I mean, I think a few things, a few things happened sort of all at the same time. I had had a corporate design career, which was wonderful. And I I'm eternally grateful for that chapter of my life. Um, and then I spent about 10 years uh, with a business partner doing design consulting. Again, a wonderful experience and grateful for that chapter. 
my business partner and I, our business sort of naturally came to an end and I was still doing freelance work here and there. My mother-in-law got a really jarring, very sudden terminal diagnosis. I had young children. I was sort of just in this weird space and things were not good, like in any way, shape or form at that time. They have preschoolers at home and then someone facing end of life things happening all in your ecosystem at the same time. I immediately like knew I needed something for myself and started painting again. And there was something about walking into the painting studio the first time, the smell, like every little sensory thing. I'm like, oh, I remember this. And it felt good. It felt, you know, in alignment with what I needed at that time. At the same time, that chapter, people would say, how are you doing? And I would say, I'm terrible. And they would look at me kind of strange and not know what to say in response. But it was true. Like it was a really difficult time of like trying to maintain a a good life for my children, trying to care for my mother-in-law after she passed away. My own mom got sick. It was just like the hits kept coming and life was brutal. And it was also really beautiful at the same time. And that was really hard to sort of be in that space where I'm like, I still need to love all the things that are wonderful about our life. And at the same time, we're facing some really serious, really heavy stuff. And also just the, the work that goes with caring for someone who's dying, you know, the, the car rides to the hospital and the, all the things that go along with that. It was the most humbling time for our family, I think. Um, but painting was like the one thing I'm like, I'm going painting at, uh, on this day, or I'm going to go, I sat on my easel in the living room at, or in the kitchen at one point and like would feed my kids a snack and then paint a layer and then wipe down the counters and then paint a layer and then help a kid with something. And it was just a weird time. And then the pandemic came right after that. And so it was just strange. And I think by reconnecting with my art, the type of painting that I really connected with in in terms of intuitive abstract art really sort of follows and mirrors that life space where it's like, it's the building up of many, many things that happen. It's the history, it's the richness, it's the layers. It's like, get all the ugly stuff out on the canvas and you can paint all over it, calm and Zen. So those two things sort of went hand in hand for a few years. And then I reached a point where I was like, I am an artist. What, why am I pretending? Why am I pretending that I'm not? Yeah. And so I slowly, in a way that was comfortable for me, started sharing my work more. It's still not super comfortable for me being salesy in any way. But at the same time, I'm just doing the work and showing up and painting every day and connecting with other artists and as a stranger has bought some of my paintings. That's the thing where I'm like, strangers, strangers bought paintings today. <laughs> and I marvel at that. So it's been fun. So there's so much there in that answer. I just find that so powerful. Like one, you talked about something I think a lot of people our age, 40s, late 40s, whatever it is, are going through, which is, you know, that sandwich generation, right? As you, you know, you're a mom, taking care of, you know, two little kids that need you and who are relying on you and that you want to be present for. And then you have two, you know, dying women that you're caring for and shepherding through the end of life, right? So that juxtaposition of those things that you said is just, yeah, what do you do when you find yourself in the middle of that? There's so much emotion to process all at once and it's beautiful and it's awful at the same time. And one of the things that you said that I loved was, I knew I needed something for myself. And it seems like sometimes, you know, it's like, okay, but what is it, what is it? Like, oh, well, let's go back. 
let's go back, right? It's, it doesn't necessarily have to be a new thing, right? It's like mid, the typical midlife crisis, right? Like, like dude gets a sports car, right? Like you don't have to buy something new. Sometimes you have to look backwards and you look back and you found painting again, which is just so incredible. It's really funny you say that. I hate the term midlife crisis. It's bullshit. I think it's like this midlife empowerment, if anything else, of like, okay, I'm here. I've survived this far. I'm at a little bit more of a comfortable place. Now, what do I want to do? And I, I get that that comes with like a lot of privilege and a lot of, you know, not everybody's life follows the same track. But at the same time, like you said about looking back, the things that have always brought me joy, I am recognizing that more at this point in life, whether that's painting. I started playing tennis again. Like I won't stop talking about it to anybody who will listen. And I don't care. I, I don't care about winning. I'm playing, I'm getting better, I'm having fun. I laugh my face off every week and I never leave in a worse mood than when I started. And same thing with painting. And I think finding those things for people is important. And it is really interesting when it's things that you, you, you loved when you were younger that maybe you walked away from a little bit. Yeah, that's right. I forgot you and I were on the tennis team together for a, a hot we minute. Were. We were. <laughs> <laughs> Same thing. I, I hate midlife crisis. Uh, I don't think it's a midlife crisis the way that I think about it and the way that I certainly experienced it, which is, you know, why I left my teaching job, you know, as a professor and started, you know, doing what I'm doing is working with clients and having my own company. For me, it was midlife catalyst. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was midlife clarity. Yes, yes. Yeah. So it's like people people talk about it as like, a, you know, oh, midlife crisis. Like, no, it's a catalyst and it's clarity. And then if you have that clarity and if you have, again, the courage and also, like you said, the means, if you're in a position of privilege and you have the opportunity to decide to take stock of what's going on, then, yeah, you can make some really interesting changes and you get to kind of control what your life looks like from here on out. Like for me, I figuratively felt the hourglass tip over. You know, for a certain point, it was like, oh, I'm going up, up, up. And then it tipped over and I'm like, oh, I'm on the other side of it now. I really have to make some decisions. Yeah. And I think what you said about clarity is really important. And, and going through what we went through with my mom at the end of her life, everything that wasn't important fell away. Anything that wasn't critical, and I don't mean critical just in like a black and white practical kind of way, but critical in terms of what is most important in our lives, everything else fell away. And we were at the end of the day, we were left with what was most important. And it's hard after you have a, an experience like that to go back to anything else, anything different than that. So yeah, midlife clarity. I like it. Yeah. Things sort of shed, right? Things it's like shedding, shedding the things that we no longer need, shedding the things that no longer serve us which is fair since I'm also shedding hair at an alarming rate. Like I at least, <laughs> I at least need to be shedding some of the bad stuff too. <laughs> when you were talking about that experience of sort of being in the in-between, right? That sandwich generation and that life is just so insane, right? Because those two things can live so closely side by side, the tragedy and the joy. And we can also ping pong in between them on a daily basis. I read your artist statement and I love that you have an artist statement. I love that you are calling yourself an artist. I love that you are finally like, you know what? Like, forget it. I'm an artist. Me too. <laughs> yeah, but that's what I love too. Like, it's never too late, right? It's never too late. According to your artist statement, you say, 
My art is about joy and grief. It's about motherhood and freedom. It's about finding calm. It's finding and expressing calm and chaos and continues to explore how life can be at once tragic and wondrous. So it's interesting to me about that, right? So you're sort of playing with this idea of opposites here in your work. And I can see that in your art also, right? Like sort of the, the clash of colors and the sort of clash of shapes. And so the, the position here in the artist statement is like there's joy and there's grief, there's calm and there's chaos. And then you position motherhood and freedom like almost as opposites in that particular way. And as someone who isn't a mom herself, right, I, I, try to steer, I try to be very careful about wading into waters that are far above my head. But I imagine that positioning it in that way, whether it was conscious or unconscious, that art for you and painting for you and especially abstract painting is a form of escape. Right, like when, with kids, maybe there's like, is there something regimented, right? You have to get them up at a certain time. There's a schedule, you have to get them to their activities and there's freedom from that as an abstract painter. Yeah, and I think particularly as being a parent is like, again, one of the most humbling things that's ever happened to me. And it, it definitely um, becomes or can become, you know, a, a primary focus. Raising good humans requires a lot of energy. And at the same time, I think it's really important for my children, particularly my daughter, to see parts of me that maybe she doesn't see. She sees me making scrambled eggs. She sees me, you know, taking care of her. And I think it's important in this chapter, as my kids are a little bit older now, to see me as an artist, as other things other than just their mom. I don't mean just their mom, but, you know. I think having a daughter in particular has made me think more deeply about all the things in the artist statement, you know, because life isn't only wonderful. You know, I, I ask any human, there's nobody who's like, everything is great. And maybe they exist. I haven't yet to meet one. If they do, they're lying. Yeah. And at the same time, when you're in the midst of a really difficult chapter, whether it's an illness or financial struggles or whatever, when you're in the midst of a really difficult time, substance use, whatever is going on in your family, there's also still like a beautiful sunset. And there's also still the moment where like the wind hits your cheek and you roll down the car and the right song comes on the radio and the sunlight hits you just right, even in those darkest, darkest times. So I think it's an interesting, you know, I don't think at this point you want to say like, oh, life will get better next month or life will calm down next year or things are going to get better when the pandemic is over. And, or, you know, you hear a lot of that. And I think going from the back-to-back -back dying moms right into the global pandemic, I was like, this is it. Like, we have to appreciate where we are right now um, and what's happening. And maybe that's I don't know, sitting in my backyard and listening to the birds tweet because we can't go to a party or a concert, but like, this is life. And so there's always that push and pull of the beauty and the tragedy. And, and I think in my art, you'll see the first layers in a painting tend to be very chaotic and messy and whatever. And then you sort of have this conversation with the painting and you simplify and quiet some places and leave some of those chaotic marks behind and veil them in some ways. and sort of find the balance of, of the quiet and the chaos. So yeah, motherhood and freedom. That's an interesting one. That was definitely subconscious. 
Yeah, I wondered, I was reading it and I thought, oh, I wonder if she knows that this is sort of hidden in here. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely days where I like drive a kid, a kid and drop them off somewhere and then like put the radio up as loud as I can and put on maybe some unexpected music in my car and like feel alive and then like turn it down and go pick up the kids again. You know, there's moments where there's, you have to remind yourself you're still you. Yeah. What is, what is unexpected music for you? Is it just like, I don't know. It depends on the day. I'm just, you know? I'm just picturing you like listening to death metal screaming in your car. No, and more, not really death metal is not necessarily my thing, but like, you know, whatever, whatever strikes me in that moment. Yeah, it is. Yeah. You can't lose yourself. Right. Cause then, you know, I mean, it's the classic thing, right? Put your oxygen mask on first. Like how are you supposed to yeah. help your kids if you can't help yourself first? Yeah. And, and, you know, the other interesting thing that I found as considering myself a working artist at this point, a lot of the more successful artists that I've come in contact with are women who are our age and beyond. It's not a 25-year-old protege. And not to say that they don't exist, but a lot of the women that I admire and respect are women who have lived a full life. You know, they may have had a full different career before this. And so it, it's inspiring for me to look forward that way. Again, it has to do with like that shedding and also realizing like, what do, what do I have to be afraid of? Like nothing. This is this. Yeah, this is it. Like, this is it. We have one shot at life and I want to make some noise. I want to make a mess and I want to have some yeah. fun, you know, before the lights go out. I've also been thinking about, you know, failure and, and I want to talk about your career as a designer and a shoe designer and working with global, global brands. But before I get there, there's one, it just, it popped in my head the other day because you and I are also both obsessed with color. Mm -hmm. Like you talk about it on your website. It's like a lifelong love affair. Yes. And I too, I'm just obsessed with it, right? Like a, a good color can make my whole day and a bad color can just, you know, kind of set me off. I'm very, I'm very sensitive to color. One of the earliest memories I have of our friendship was and I don't know if you remember this, but you and I were, you and I were talking about color on the school bus, about the way that we see. Is this? Do you remember this? Probably, yeah. Go ahead. So, like two little nerds, right? Just trying to figure out. Well, I see blue. Well, you see blue, and I see blue, and I know that that's blue, and you know that that's blue. But is is the blue that I see the same blue that you the blue that you see? Mm hmm. I vividly remember this conversation. <laughs> yeah, two little nerds talking about like color theory. I feel like we were on the school bus. Maybe not. Maybe I made that part up. But I feel like we were looking at the green on the back of the seat, that textured green bus seat. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we yeah. were like, we label that as green. But what if you see it the way I see yellow? But we just label it that way. Yeah. Yep. We've been yeah. thinking of this stuff for a long time. We have been thinking of this stuff for a very, I think, I think that was probably the first conversation I even ever had about color and it was with you. So I think that that's just kind of a fun memory to share. Love it. Love it. This episode of Fun with Failure is brought to you by DeliveryPath. Are you happy with your website provider? Because I definitely am. I use DeliveryPath because they specialize in web hosting, security, and optimization. That means my site is fast, secure, and stable. It's online all the time, and I don't have to worry about it because that's their job, and they're really good at it. They take care of the daily, weekly, and monthly upgrades, so my site is always up to date. 
Unlike discount WordPress web hosting companies, DeliveryPath provides concierge-level customer service. If you ever have a problem with your website, they don't just use chatbots to help you, they actually chat with you. When you call DeliveryPath, someone local answers the phone. When it comes to WordPress website hosting, you get what you pay for. So if you think your business is worth $5, then get a discount vendor. But if you really want your website to work for you, then let the experts at DeliveryPath manage it for you. And they're offering a special discount for our listeners. If you mention the promo code FUN, you'll get 10% off your first three months. For more information, visit DeliveryPath.com or email service at DeliveryPath.com. So you took an intuitive painting class and you say that you know you paint intuitively what does that mean it really means you show up to the canvas you take a couple of breaths and you just paint the process is a lot of like mark making and then layers of paint layers of mark making layers of paint you know there was a day i was painting in my studio i had a big piece and it was really ugly at this point in time because the beginning, you're not thinking at all. You're just painting. And, and in a lot of ways, it's processing, whether it's your thoughts or your emotions. It, you know, it really helps me kind of get into that flow state that people talk about. I find it harder for me to get into that when someone's like, paint this pair. You know, I, I can get there that way, but I find my thinking brain sort of takes over in that space. So you show up at the canvas, you make marks just intuitively. Some might call it scribbles. I don't really think of it that way, but you know, you're making marks, you're making shapes, and you're sort of looking at the canvas and responding to that and saying, oh, wow, there's an interesting shape where I like the way this line looks, or, you know, what if I break the canvas up this way? So there's several rounds of that, if you will, and every mark that you make on the canvas, you kind of respond back to that versus going into the painting and having a plan. So I don't have a plan. And um, the last sort of finishing touches of it, you you know think more about composition and trying to sort of pull it all together. But it really is a conversation with your painting. Yeah, so there was a big ugly one in my studio. My husband came in and was like, "Oh," and I was like, "Don't worry, it's just like we're not there yet," you know. And and I think I sent you that quote today by um, an artist named Brian Rutenberg, where he says every painting fails before it succeeds. And I that, like rang true to me. And you know if 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 your painting is, if you don't like your painting, it's just not done. You just kind of keep going until you get to a place where you're happy with it. And sometimes that takes months, sometimes it takes weeks, sometimes it takes one day. Yeah, there's such freedom in that, right? Like every painting fails before it succeeds. Every person fails before it succeeds. Every business fails before it, right? Because if you, if you go into it thinking, oh, I want this outcome and I want this goal, right? Again, one of the most powerful things I think people can do is fall in love with the process, right? We're so focused on the outcome and we're so focused on the goal. But if you hate the process of trying to achieve the goal, you're probably doing the wrong thing. And it really just sounds like you've completely fallen in love. And well, and maybe it's just that you haven't completely fallen in love with it, but maybe have you always been in love with it? Has it always been this sort of intuitive? So no, I, I never painted this way before, even though I've always been um, someone who deeply admires abstract art, like take me to a museum and, you know, realist paintings I can appreciate and I can, you know, be like, oh, it's beautiful, but like it doesn't evoke emotion from me. It doesn't give me that like, 
electricity feeling. So when I go to a museum, I, I've always gravitated towards more abstract paintings. I think I was afraid before. I don't think I had the confidence or the boldness, or maybe I just hadn't lived enough of life to try this way of painting. And also, again, I know people say the internet is bad and it is, and it's also wonderful. I was able to connect with other artists, teachers that live on the other side of the country. I took a weekly Zoom painting class with other artists and we would, the teacher was like, I feel bad that we're not in person. And I'm like, I don't care. Like I'm talking to other artists at this time. That's really challenging. And I, you know, it's some of my fondest memories of that time was turning my computer on. And sometimes we wouldn't even talk, but you know, everyone just have their screens on and be painting. And every once in a while we'd show each other what we were up to. But I think from a meditation standpoint, it was very, very helpful for my mental health during that. The thing that I keep going back to is that like you showed up first, right? Like again, earlier in the conversation, you said, I knew I needed something for myself. You set up, you know, it's like some people have that instinct that they feel it in their body, they feel it in their heart and they don't, and they still don't do anything. Oh, I know I should be doing something else or I know I want to, but they can't get out of it. But you know, you put the easel up in the kitchen and you put the first layer of paint down before you fed your kids breakfast and then you put the second layer. So it's like, there, it still takes, you still have to meet the calling halfway, right? You still have to kind of be like, oh yeah, something has to change. I'm gonna have to go to an art class. I'm not comfortable, but I'm gonna have to do it. Yeah, I had started painting again a couple of years before that. But again, it was like, I dabbled in a few different, like one class was more landscape focused and one class we would do really cool still lifes. And I was enjoying myself and I was happy to go. One of the things I love that you do is, you know, with, cause you, I think, what was it? 20, was it 2021 and 2022? But you had almost done a painting a day. So I started that 2022, New Year's Eve, 2021, going into 2022. Um, I, my whole family, we went down one by one and got COVID. And I sort of woke up the next day and was like, I'm going to paint one painting every day, you know, New Year's Day. What else? We're home. And so I started doing just a small paper piece every day. And, you know, it, again, in connection with failure, there's something about painting on a small piece of paper that's a lot easier than painting on a big canvas, which I still do larger, larger work as well. But like, if I hate my daily painting, who cares? Who cares? There's a new one tomorrow. There's a new one tomorrow. And, and there, it sounds silly. Like who cares? What is the psychological difference between a canvas and a piece of paper, but it's there, you know, I don't care what happens on the piece of paper. And so it's allowed me to experiment and play and try things and try different tools and try different types of paint and try different color palettes and just, be free. And again, sometimes it's magic and sometimes it's terrible. Yeah. You're, it's, it's fun with failure regardless. And there's, there's also a vulnerability about showing those daily paintings every day too, because they do sometimes suck. Maybe not suck, but like they're not, they're not what I would maybe want them to be, but the process of doing them, you know, it was, I showed up and I did the painting and here it is. And so committing to showing that without editing and without only showing the best work or only showing my favorite work has been freeing as well. Yeah, or even having to explain it, right? I think one of the things 
you know, when I think about what is failure, right, different people have different definitions of failure. Some people it's not trying at all. Some people it's setting a goal and then not achieving the goal. Um, some people it's not being the best version of myself. Like whatever your definition of failure is, it's also for those daily paintings, you know, when you said, yeah, you might set out to do something and it doesn't really turn out that way. But you don't have to even explain it. You don't have to, like, when you present the art, you know, it's not like, oh, well, I tried to do this thing, but it came out like this. Like, oh, well, because sometimes it's like, maybe the audience likes it even better. Right? Who gets to decide whether it's a mistake or a failure or if it's good or it's bad? And removing that judgment and removing that attachment to the outcome has been you know, the best part of the process. And there are days where I'm like, I love my daily painting. And, and there are days where I'm like, ugh. but it's okay. It really is. Uh, yeah, I've gotten to the place where I'm like, there's enough of a body of work that you can see my voice through it. There's enough, you know, someone, one of my teachers the other day said, you have to paint what an acre of canvas or something to master something. Who, who knows? Who cares what that number is or the 10,000 hour mark that some people say about mastering any skill? Like, but there's something about uh, approaching the daily paintings as a daily meditation, as a daily practice. You know, some people do a plank for 30 seconds every day, or some people do sit down on a mat and meditate every day for 10 minutes. This is my version of that. And I feel like it's helped me move my larger work forward and, you know, gain confidence and gain experience while painting one small painting every day. One of the things I like uh, about following you on Insta and seeing your progression, I'll be scrolling through reels and I'll sort of scroll and I'll say, oh, that's one of Kelly's. And then I'll look and then I'll see your name. So it's become like you, your style has become recognizable to me. Like I can, I can identify your work, which is just so, so fun. Cause I'm like, oh, oh, that's one of Kelly's. That's so great. And also, you know, when you talk about putting the first layer down, because one of the things that you do is you don't just show the end process or the end product, you actually show the process. So we get to see a lot when it, on your daily paintings, we get to see the first layer. And you said, yeah, sometimes the first layer, it's just chaos. It's just get it out of my brain, get out whatever, anxiety, energy, get it on the thing, get it on the canvas. And then we get to see how that transforms, right? And sometimes it transforms into, you know, something kind of bright and beautiful. And other times it might be bright and beautiful and then you add some chaos on top of it. That's also how it works. That's also how life works. Do you ever wish you had more confidence as a public speaker? Is it holding you back from getting to the next level in your career? My company is The Pitch Prof and my specialties are in business presentations and public speaking. If you want to advance your career or your business, Hire a communication coach, because what you say is as important as how you say it. Regardless of your skill level as a public speaker, I can help you communicate with confidence. To learn more or schedule a call, visit thepitchprof.com. I want to talk a little bit about your background as a designer. So you talked about, I think, you know, you had worked at Reebok for a while. You started your own company. You were working a shoe designer, working with global brands. Can you talk about some of the projects that you worked on? Because I know you also, like you would fly internationally for these clients and work internationally with these clients. So, so my, my very first job, 
which it's silly to start at this, but my very first job was as a color designer at Reebok, which was like my dream come true. I was like, I don't have to design anything. I should just color it. Sure. Got it. No problem. Um, but I, you know, I learned about, uh, color and sort of the trend forecasting aspect of the business, um, where we would create themes and color palettes and, you know, do the research that, um, it's like sort of pre-internet version of this, but, you know, we would go to New York and we would meet with people who were trend forecasting agents. Um, it was great. It was a great experience. It was great exposure. Um, when I left Reebok, I went to be a footwear designer with Tommy Hilfiger for a little while. Um, and again, that was a great, it was a great experience. You know, we, we had offices, um, at the time in Taiwan, um, and there was a great group of, um, women that I worked with when I was there. And I don't think I had any concept of how lucky we were, um, to work with such amazing, it was a lot of women in the office, a lot of women about my age, um, and um, I went and worked with StrideRight, which was sort of part of the same parent company doing children's footwear. Um, but yeah, a lot of our job in, involved um, traveling around the world's different cities and shopping, doing market research. Um, another big part of our job was traveling to um, the factories and development centers where the product is being made. So there was a big like 10 plus ish years chapter of my life where I was away a lot. Um, and it was wonderful. It was wonderful. It was exhausting, but it was wonderful. Um, and then when I sort of settled into more family stuff, my very dear friend and I started, um, a consultancy together, um, knowing that we wanted to sort of balance, uh, motherhood and our career. And we were able to do that really, um, I'm very grateful for that chapter as well, where we took on some really interesting projects with different brands. There's a lot of footwear companies in Boston, but there's a lot of global um, footwear companies that have offices here. So we had, you know, the opportunity to work with some great brands um, and sort of also still have lunch with our kids. Right, 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 right. How have you failed on your way to success? I mean, I was pretty type A at work. I, I don't know that, <laughs> I think my failure sort of came I don't think I gave myself permission to fail in that chapter of my life. Maybe a, a manager of mine would say differently, but I think, you know, I took that part of my career pretty seriously and, and was pretty type A in my approach. I think the freedom to fail sort of, maybe when I quit, maybe when I quit, when I, when I quit that life that was, going really well and said, I, I want to quit and like start working for myself. Can I do that? And again, I was still sort of asking for permission. Um, I wasn't married at the time. I asked my financial advisor for permission and he said, sure. And <laughs> so I think my comfort with failure has come as I've gotten older. You know, I think working for the man, I did what, what I needed to do to be working for the man, which again, it was a wonderful experience and I made lifelong friends and I, you can't, can't discount how cool that chapter of my life was, but at the same time, I don't think I was fully comfortable with failing at that point. You know, I think my, my comfort with failing is a newer, <laughs> a newer thing I'm trying on. Yeah, me too. I mean, hence the, you know, hell, I created a podcast about it, right? Like 
I wasn't comfortable about it. I'm still not super comfortable about it, but I'm getting better at it. And I think that's just part, again, it's yeah. part of the process. Are, are you willing to try something new? Are you willing to get outside of your comfort zone? Are you willing to keep living basically because, and are you willing to, you know, find something that you enjoy the process of, not just the product of? Yeah, and I, you know, in preparation for this this week, I listened to some of your other um, episodes. I had listened to one or two previously, but I went back to some of the more recent ones and I noticed, you know, one of the questions is how do you define failure? And I was like, how do I define failure? Like, I, I think it's a dirty word in some ways that we don't talk about it, but at the same time, you know, my, I think my answer after contemplating it for the past couple of days is I think failure is part of the process. Like, I think it's, it's as much as a part of the process as any other part of, you know, a cycle of growth or of opportunity. I think it's part of the process. Not like, oh, she failed. It's like, okay, that, this thing failed. What's next? Okay, this aspect of this failed. Okay, how do we fix it? Okay, this failed. How do we move forward from there? Yeah, I mean, in product development and tech development, that's like called iteration. Right, like, oh, we this is how we get better over time. We found we found a weakness. We're going to improve on it. Oh, we found an area of improvement. We're going to make it better. It's going to be more efficient. It's going to be. That's really interesting because I do think as part of the design process, I mean, you you submit your designs and your tech pack and you get back a prototype. And usually they suck. You know, usually the prototypes come back like wonky, and you take some masking tape to it and you, you take an exacto knife and you cut parts off of it, or you take some paint and you paint it and like. Maybe I've, maybe as a designer, it really is part of the process. Fun with failure. There we go. <laughs> it is fun. Yeah, it's like a totally different way to approach it. It doesn't. It doesn't have to be so scary. And it's also like I think the other way to think about it, and that I've thought about it, you know, in the last couple of years, is it also it used to be tied up in my identity, right? Like if I failed, I was a failure. Right, it was a part of who I was, and I think that may also be how some people think about it, or a lot of people think about it. But now it's like, oh no, I failed at something. I failed at something that I was trying to do, and I learned a lesson. And so it's like, it's not a, it's not a failure, right? But it's it's no longer tied intrinsically to my identity, or at least I'm I'm trying to do a better job of releasing it from that part of my identity. And also, like, and. and it this is annoying, but like, what even is failure? I don't know. I, I don't even, I mean, late, lately I've been, uh, you know, trying different things. I was never an athletic child. You know, this, I probably was picked last for every kickball team or gym team. Like I was tiny and not very strong. And, and as a, a grown up, I've discovered that I really like lifting weights, exercising, pushing myself a little bit more, but like, that's all like failure, like try fail. You can't, Oh, you can't lift that weight. Oh, you can't do that wall walk upside down whatever okay did i laugh while trying to do it yeah did i try sure i mean i think it really is part of any process of growth yeah there's a great um i don't know if have you been watching the white lotus <laughs> so i haven't finished it yet because i keep falling asleep but yes <laughs> right so okay so no spoilers but jennifer coolidge is the star of white lotus on hbo and Mike White, the creator, came to her and said, listen, I created this role. I want you to do it. You know, um, you're perfect for it. It's going to be great. And, you know, this is going to be a show on HBO, whatever. 
And she almost turned it down because over the pandemic, she had gained weight. She gained like 40 pounds or something like that. And so she said, you know, and she was going back and forth and she almost didn't do it. Cause, you know, again, thinking of like failure. Oh, I failed. I gained weight. I'm an actress. I need to be skinny, whatever it is. And she almost turned it down. And right now, there's this Jennifer Coolidge renaissance happening, right? Everyone is obsessed with her and her extra 40 pounds, right? Everyone loves her. She's amazing. She's winning all the awards, all the accolades. Everybody wants to work with her now. She won recently, I think it was the Screen Actors Guild or something. Anyway, it was uh, on her acceptance speech. She said, you know, it's not over until you're dead. And that's, and that's part of it, right? It's not like, yeah, fail, try stuff, make a mistake. It's all part of the process. It's not over until you're dead. I had a, um, a moment years ago when I was working as a designer and I was in London for work and I was shopping and I was with a friend of mine and I was stand, I found myself standing in front of this Picasso painting at the Tate Modern Museum and sort of calculated when he painted it. And it was like in his nineties. And in that moment, I took like a big sigh and I was like, there's time for all of it. And maybe I knew in that moment that I was meant to be an abstract artist, but like I had this moment where I'm like, he wasn't 30 when he painted this. He wasn't 40. He wasn't 50. He was 90 something when he painted this painting that's hanging in this museum. Like, okay, there's some time. We can do all the things. There's time to get there. So that gave me a, a good perspective too. Besides Instagram, is there anything that you want to share with listeners? Do you have upcoming shows? Are there people you want to plug, promote? Um, I have a few things cooking at the moment, but uh, nothing shareworthy maybe yet. I have a website. It's kellybroderickart.com okay. and you can find my work there and my daily paintings I share on Instagram. Awesome. Thanks so much, Kelly. Thank you. This was a pleasure. All right. We'll talk soon. Thank you. You can learn more about the show at funwithfailure.com. If you want to say hi or find out about sponsorship opportunities, our email address is fun at funwithfailure.com. And if you like what you hear, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. Thanks for listening. And until next time, go have some fun. QueenCityPodcastNetwork.com. dot com.